1: Welcome to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. It's progressive news without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener, and today we'll be talking about ISIS and American Muslims and Republicans and American guns. Also today, we'll remember Chernobyl, thanks to the new winner of the Nobel Prize for Literature. First up... Of course, we're still thinking about the San Bernardino attacks last week, where 14 people were killed and 21 injured by Syed Farouk and his wife, Tashfeen Malik. We know that Tashfeen Malik posted an oath of allegiance to the Islamic State at Facebook just before the attacks. But what does the Islamic State, ISIS, want from Muslims in America? We talked about that with Leila Lalami. Our conversation was recorded before the San Bernardino attacks, but her comments are more relevant than ever in its aftermath. Leila Lalami's essays and opinion pieces have appeared in the New York Times, the LA Times, the Washington Post, the Guardian, and the Nation. She wrote the novel The Moor's Account, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. She also teaches. She's a professor of creative writing at the University of California, Riverside. Leila Lalami, welcome.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Well, you've been reading a magazine published by ISIS in English called Dabiq, D-A-B-I-Q. It can be found online. And I know you were especially interested in an article there that had the title, The Extinction of the Gray Zone. What for ISIS is the gray zone?
2: Well, I, I should first clarify um, I should I should specify I don't make a habit of reading terrorist propaganda. I what happened is uh, I was aware of this magazine uh, and that it was part of ISIS's efforts to spread its message outside of the territory that it controls. Um, and I had seen a couple of other issues. I remember I saw one uh, because it was relevant to me because they it was an issue about writers that they had problems with. And this this issue of February. Um, came to my attention uh, because I follow a number of uh, national, for- national security reporters, and, and that's how I found out about this one, that mentioned the gray zone. And according to ISIS, the gray zone is essentially the space that is inhabited by any Muslim who does not side with them and instead, instead uh, chooses to live in this sort of uh, space of coexistence with the enemy namely with anybody who is not isis and that includes especially and of course the united states and 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 its allies so anybody who does not side with them any muslim who does not side with them inhabits that gray zone
1: and and what what terms did they use to describe the muslims who who are uh, who are in the middle
2: Well, they use this in this issue. They use a variety of terms. They call them the hypocrites and they call them the grayish and sometimes the grayish hypocrites.
1: The grayish (laughs) hypocrites. That that doesn't sound good. Uh, I, I hesitate to put it this way. But in ISIS terms, are you one of the grayish hypocrites?
2: Absolutely, absolutely I would say in fact that the vast majority of the Muslim world is in that space uh, obviously but but in particular I feel concerned about this because I feel that someone like me whose life is is kind of in between cultures and in between languages uh, is especially vulnerable um I was born as you know in Morocco and uh, and I came to my love of literature through French and then now I live in Los Angeles and I, you know, write books in English and I teach at the University of California. So it's 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 a, it's a life that's always been lived between cultures and between languages um, and between in, in, in all these in between spaces. And that's very threatening to them, that kind of coexistence.
1: How unusual is that for Muslims in America?
2: I don't think it's unusual at all, and I don't even think it's unusual for people who are non-Muslims. I think we live in an age where there's a lot of, a lot of people are inhabiting those spaces between cultures. I think this really relates to a question of identity. None of our identities are um, sort of unitary and unique. Uh, You know, you can be Muslim and American, you can be a woman and you can be Muslim. You know, everybody has multiple identities at once. And but under ISIS's view, there is only one identity that you have to have, which is that you are part of ISIS and that therefore you're you're the one who's fighting the infidel. And that's what they care about. So anybody who claims multiple identities in a sense is threatening to them.
1: So you write uh, in your piece for The uh, New York Times magazine that uh, for people like you who live in this what what ISIS calls the gray zone, you say most of the time. Lives in the gray zone go unnoticed in America, but there are other times when gray lives become targets. Mm -hmm. When does that happen?
2: Well, I mean, statistically, it's been shown that um, hate crimes against Muslims peak after every terrorist attack. So there's definitely a connection in the mainstream in people's minds between Muslims and terrorists. And uh, for example, just today I saw uh, that someone published the names and home addresses of people who uh, belong to a mosque in Irvine, Texas. Um, it just so there, I mean, people do all kinds of crazy things after terrorist attacks. And so I think. Uh, for American Muslims in particular, or people who look like Muslims, let's not forget that this, the term Muslim is also sort of racialized and that a number of people are targeted merely because they might look like they might be Muslim. Um, So for those people, they are particularly vulnerable after terrorist attacks. Um, and, and, And that is also something that ISIS counts on. One of the things that that you can glean when you read that article is that they're actually uh, saying that they don't believe that that the West is a hospitable place for Muslims and that that Muslims who live there are deluding themselves into thinking that this coexistence is possible. So in fact, the anti-Muslim sentiment and the anti-Muslim crimes are are absolutely playing into uh, ISIS's hands.
1: In ISIS's language, they divide the world into the supporters of the caliphate and the supporters of the crusaders. You're either one or the other. It's a good thing we don't have that kind of black and white thinking in our own politics.
2: I like your sarcasm, John. (laughs) I mean, uh, the very opening paragraph of that 12-page article is about the September uh, 11th attacks. And in it, uh, they talk about how the attacks made clear for the world that there are these two camps. And they cite Osama bin Laden, who in turn was saying that uh, George W. Bush was right. So they agree with him that... The world is divided into two camps and you are either with us or you're against us. And those are specifically the words that, you know, George Bush used in his first in his first address uh, to Congress after the September 11th attacks.
1: And he's not the only one in the, our present uh, presidential primary race. I believe there are a few candidates who hold this same kind of black and white view
2: um i mean absolutely i think we we're seeing the return of that uh kind of rhetoric uh now with the with with, with the gop uh nomination and you can see it you can look at pretty much all of them and you will notice this pattern uh it's particularly been pronounced with donald trump uh with some of his uh statements about uh wanting a database for for american muslims and saying that he personally sh- saw thousands of people cheering in New Jersey and, uh, you know, all kinds of crazy things. Um, ben Carson also has said that he would not advocate a Muslim become president. So there's all kinds of uh, rhetoric that's that's uh, being used right now in order to gain votes. But the direct effect of that is that it's going to uh, play into what ISIS wants. That's exactly what ISIS wants. Is to prove that 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 places that the West and America in particular are not hospitable places for Muslims.
1: So we asked that question at the at the uh, outset. What does ISIS what does ISIS want? And one answer is to eliminate what, what they call and what we have called here the gray zone. What would what, what an ISIS victory mean for the people who, uh, who who like you who inhabit the gray zone?
2: I mean, it's it's difficult not to feel that that you're in a way kind of wedged in between, because on the one hand, you have people like ISIS who are absolutely, uh, you know, a danger to you. And on the other hand, you have people who mistake you for ISIS and think that you are the same as ISIS. So it's kind of an odd position to uh, to be placed in and and. I want to continue to live in this space, and I think it's in the best interest of many, many, many people that we preserve that space.
1: A few closing points. Please remind us, who are the principal victims of ISIS? Muslims. And, And who are the principal people in the world today resisting ISIS?
2: Muslims as well.
1: Leila Lalami. She wrote about the gray zone for The New York Times Magazine. Thank you, Leila.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: We spoke with Leila Lalami before the attacks in San Bernardino last week. Now it's time to talk about Republicans and guns. For that, we turn to Joan Walsh. She's National Affairs Correspondent for The Nation. She's a frequent guest on Hardball with Chris Matthews on MSNBC. And she's author of the book, What's the Matter with White People? Joan Walsh, welcome back. Thanks, John. In a President Obama speech after the San Bernardino killings, he called on Congress to, quote, make sure no one on a no-fly list is able to buy a gun. And he asked, what could possibly be the argument for allowing a terrorist suspect to buy a semi-automatic weapon? The Republicans, of course, have an argument. They, they have Lots of arguments uh, please, please remind us about some of these, maybe starting with Carly Fiorina. <laughs>
3: Well, Carly Fiorina says what, what several of them, what, what lots of them say. And it really is uh, something that, that points to the very uh, perverted definition, definition of liberty that this party has nowadays, where liberty, the most important liberty is the right to own a gun, and other liberties uh, are, are far less important. So Carly Fiorina, the day after uh, the tragic shooting in San Bernardino, told the folks at Morning Joe that she does not support... Like 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 you know, the most almost all Republicans does not support banning people on the terror watch list, the no-fly list, it's also called, banning them from purchasing guns because government makes mistakes. And she she said to Joe Scarborough, "I just don't trust government to get it right." Do you? And I just sat there and I thought, wow, if you really don't trust government to get it right, then you would oppose the idea of a no-fly list in the first place, right? I mean, if you, at, if you, if you polled the, the innocent people on the no-fly list anyway, I'm sure they would care much more about their inability to fly home for the holidays to see their families or across country for business than their right to buy a gun that the Republican Party is protecting. And yet that's what the right gets boiled down to. But, but I mean, I think there's something deeper and, and you know less, quote, funny about it. And that is that this is a party that for the last Ten years, certainly, but really even going back to Bill Clinton, has insisted that the Democrats are coming for their guns and that they need their guns to potentially overthrow the government someday. There's an there's a anti-democratic strain that is so deep and a perverse reading of the Second Amendment that's so pervasive, and it really does come down to the demonization of government that we've, that we've experienced in the last 10 to 30 years
1: well i know some of this is focused on obama that obama is coming for your guns this was a big what shall we call it theme of the far right right around the time of the election and there was a huge bump in sales of of these uh, assault rifles does it go back before obama or is this mostly an obama thing
3: well, I think one thing that goes back before Obama was during the Bill Clinton administration. Uh, Wayne LaPierre was was uh, you know very very adamant that Clinton was also coming for your guns, and he uh, sent some choice emails about uh, jackbooted government thugs uh, and why you needed your guns to protect yourself. Against them, and all of that became controversial in the wake of the Oklahoma City bombing when you know Timothy McVeigh, who was militant in a lot of ways, including around guns, took to heart the notion that the government is a bunch of jackbooted thugs and i 'm not saying that Lapierre caused him to do it, but there was a lot of uh you know the the militia movement got going in those years uh and there was just a lot of uh anti-government rhetoric and uh so you know they killed government workers state workers and daycare uh providers in the in the building in Oklahoma City and i think there was a backlash against that i mean president clinton was very very strong and very stern about how the 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 rhetoric demonizing government that way helped contribute to the bombing. And I think, you know, as President Obama, as candidate Obama got stronger, Wayne Lapierre put out a list of ten ways he intends to take your guns, which all of which were completely made up. Uh and they, they constantly raise money and gin up their membership with this notion that Obama is coming for their guns, if not putting them in FEMA camps. But it but it's you know, it it's definitely predates Obama.
1: Let me just go back to the no-fly list for a minute. There are 47,000 people on the no-fly list. Marco Rubio told CNN the majority of people on the no-fly list are oftentimes people that just basically have the same name as somebody else who doesn't belong on the no-fly list. I think if you follow the grammar there... I think you got nobody on the no-fly list, but forty-seven thousand. I think 40, forty-seven thousand people is a lot. Uh, is that too many?
3: I, you know, I think it is too many, and I think civil libertarians have to be concerned about it. And if people are there, uh, you know, on the basis of, of nothing or you know mistakes or specious claims or allegations, they shouldn't be on it. I mean, it, it really if You really think that. There's a, uh, you know, it's a, it's a travesty, and these people should be able to have their guns. You should also be agitating and, and legislating and, you know, working with the administration and the intelligence agencies to get, you know, half of those 47,000 people off the list, not merely making it possible for all of them, including the, the genuine bad guys, to buy guns. I mean, it's just so insane. If, it, if it's that problematic, then, we, and, you know, some people who are pro-gun control uh, are concerned. I mean, I think Ted Kennedy, Senator Ted Kennedy wound up on it for a time. I mean, I, there really, you know, there have been stories of people who it was just really a ridiculous case of mistaken identity. And, you know, the more prominent you are, the easier it is to clear your, clear your name. Um, but, you know, again, be consistent about it. Uh, don't make sure that the only right that they preserve is the right to buy guns.
1: The New York Times in that uh, uh, historic front page editorial recently said we need a law that would require Americans who own assault weapons to, quote, give them up for the good of their fellow citizens. Of course, this is exactly what Wayne LaPierre and the NRA have been telling their members. You're going to have to give up your rifles. And and, uh, you remember not just Wayne LaPierre, but Charlton Heston, Charlton Heston, who played Moses on screen. Uh, When he was president of the NRA, he said to Democrats, this was in the Clinton years, I'll give you my gun when you take it from my cold, dead hands, close quote. Cold, dead hands became a bumper sticker and a rallying cry. Uh, I learned about this from Michael Moore's documentary Bowling for Columbine. I mean, the meaning is pretty clear. You'll have to kill me to take away my guns.
3: Yes well, look, I, I think that the Times is, is is doing a great service in in calling for what it believes and what many advocates do believe is necessary to make uh, to, to really reduce uh, violence via assault weapon because it's true that one of the problems with the assault weapon ban that expired and one of the things that let them say, "Oh, it doesn't do anything or it, 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 it certainly helped, but it didn't do enough because there are already so many of these guns in existence. So there are people, uh, including the Times, who say, yes, to make a real dent in this problem, we're going to have to start, you know, we're we're going to have to figure out ways to, some people say confiscation, others say, you know, very, very lucrative buybacks um, to to get some of these guns out of people's hands. Um, And, you know, of course, the the far right goes to the extreme and envisions, you know, stormtroopers going house to house searching for guns. But but the point is, I think you can also say that you know maybe that that's not going to happen. There's not the political will for that. People are afraid of that. Why don't we start with things with with a, a new gun ban that's really up to date on the kinds of weapons that that are in use now, that keeps more guns from you know getting into people's hands. If we're con- if we say there's already too many, well, that's not an argument to not you know not to try to curb more from getting out there. Or else in 10 years, I mean, let's let's just completely throw up our hands. But you know, it's it's also good when advocates ask for things that are tough to achieve and maybe impossible in yes. our in our climate because that makes. You know, more incremental measures more likely to pass. You know, and that's that's part of the problem in our country is that so many progressives, so much of the left, so many liberals, you know, in the in the 80s and 90s when they were scared of Republicans, learned to talk like Republicans and learned to say, let's not say anything that's going to you know scare them or make us sound like crazy people. Um, and, you know, actually, they could, many uh, totally abandoned gun control as just a losing issue. But, you know, we, we saw it happen in other realms around income inequality uh, and racial justice. And, and the fact is the lack of agitation and the lack of people asking for what they really want and what they think will make a difference and, and really standing out there asking for what may be impossible makes it hard for incremental reform to take place. So I'm, I was happy for the Times to lay that out there.
1: And a lot of the public uh, opinion surveys uh, show that we are not in the minority on this. The most recent data I could find was from 2013, supporting in favor of background checks for gun buyers, 85% of the public, including 79% of the Republicans. I mean, it's amazing to find that kind of unanimity. That's for background checks. Right. Federal database to track gun sales, 70% of the public in favor, including 55% of Republicans. Ban on assault-style weapons. This is the big one. 57% of the public is in favor of this, including 48% of Republicans. So this is not a minority issue at all.
3: It's not, but the way that the politics works right now is that people who are single-issue voters uh, and the most strident people really have the most impact because the rest of us are voting on a range of issues and don't and don't simply you know when you when you see Uh, I remember when the post-Newtown legislation failed and and Bloomberg's group and uh, other groups were saying, we're going to primary Democrats, you know, Democrats who didn't vote with us. Some Democrats got upset about that because it was like, well, they're good on this or they're good on that. They're good on choice. They're good on the environment. Actually, most of them were, were not, were red state Democrats who were not very good about anything, to be honest. But. You know, there's this notion, there's this fear of becoming single-issue voters, and it's hard. It's, I mean, you know, I, I'm not a single-issue voter. I, I don't know how I would be, but though, on the right, there's a lot of money. There's a lot of uh, really adamant people. That is how they vote. They're, they punish their enemies. They reward their friends. And the, the, you know, reform lobby has not figured out how to be allowed or that disciplined.
1: Joan Walsh, she's national affairs correspondent for The Nation. She wrote about the real reason we can't have gun control for TheNation.com. Thank you, Joan.
3: Thanks, John. Good talking to you.
1: Next up, remembering Chernobyl. In 1986, a reactor at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant in Ukraine, in what was then the Soviet Union, had a catastrophic meltdown. More than 70 tons of radioactive material was blown into the air or onto the ground around the plant. Soviet authorities tried to contain the situation by sending thousands of ill-equipped men into a radioactive nightmare. But why talk about this now, you ask? Because the greatest writer about Chernobyl just won the Nobel Prize for Literature, Svetlana Alexievich, was presented with the award at the prize ceremony in Oslo on December 10th. Today we have two people to talk about this later in the show. We'll speak with Tom Lutz, editor of the LA Review of Books. Svetlana Alexievich is from Minsk, and Tom was in Minsk the week before the prize was announced. He'll tell us about the political and literary context in which Svetlana Alexievich worked. But first, Amy Wilentz. She's been reading Svetlana Alexievich. She's a journalist and a novelist. Her most recent book is the award-winning Farewell, Fred Voodoo, A Letter from Haiti. She's also the former Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker and a longtime contributing editor at The Nation. She's written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, the London Review of Books, a dozen other publications, and she teaches in the Literary Journalism Program at the University of California, Irvine. Amy Wilentz, welcome back. Thanks, John. I had never heard of Svetlana Alexievich before the prize was announced. Had you? No, I hadn't. Well, certain... uh, Eyebrows were raised by the award of a prize in literature to a person whose work consists of interviews. The eyebrows said, Literature is a work of the imagination. Interviews are not. Interviews consist of asking questions, getting answers. Interviewers are journalists. Journalism is different from literature. You are the perfect person to talk to about this because you have worked as a journalist and you are a novelist. You wrote a work of the imagination, a really good novel called Martyr's Crossing. What do you say to the raised eyebrows?
4: First, I hate it when people raise their eyebrows. They're always looking down on something. Um, So what I say to these raised eyebrows is that, that all works of literature are creative. Right, And they are all, in some sense, works of the imagination. So that when you're writing uh, journalism, if you're writing very fine, what's called creative nonfiction, which sounds like you're making it up, but it doesn't mean that. If you're writing very fine journalism, you are structuring your piece. You're making reality fit in to um, an imaginative structure that you've developed for that information. And that's precisely what Alexievich does. She's uh, very brilliant at structuring what would otherwise just be uh, a series of interviews. The political commentary is, is fabulous and not aggressively done. It's as, as in literature. But you get the point, and then her characters come to life, as in fiction. And yet you feel the reality swelling beneath all of that, too.
1: I understand that she... Um... Objects to being called a journalist. She calls herself a writer.
4: Yeah, we always have this problem. So I have, I have some friends who are journalists who think that to say writer is to be really pretentious. I myself say writer because I write fiction. I write nonfiction. Um, I write letters. I write emails. No, but I think writer is fair. And she does that just precisely so that she can win the Nobel Prize.
1: Well, let's talk about Svetlana Alexievich's most famous book, Voices from Chernobyl, The Oral History of a Nuclear Disaster, published in 2006. Uh, You've read it. How did you like it?
4: It's such an amazing book because when you look at a book that's called Voices from Chernobyl, you don't think, gee, this will really be fun. I can't wait to read this one. But seriously, I opened up this book, I started reading, and you don't put it down because unlike uh, several of her other books, you feel it could be you. This could be us at any moment. And it is so specific and so uh, well described. Her interviewees are painfully, hideously honest with her. And then... It calls to task the entire Soviet structure at the time, at the toward the end of the Soviet Union.
1: Well, I know she says at her webpage that uh, the blame for Chernobyl is not exclusively... I'm going to quote here, on communists because for them, human life is worth nothing. And she also rejects the argument that she puts it, quote, stupid Russians built bad atomic power stations, but ours are good and reliable, close quote.
4: Right. So there are two things she's saying there. First of all, she's saying I'm not against communism per se, but I am against um an ideological government that refuses to acknowledge what's actually happening because it feels it must um, be respected by its people at all moments and was willing to shove people in there to deal with the reactor in ways that were unconscionable, Uh, wasn't prepared. Um, But she's not attacking the communist system, but I I think that was felt very strongly at the time of publication, that she was attacking the whole... uh, ideals of communism. And I don't think that was true. And also when she says it's not about stupid Russians building a bad reactor. Yeah, um, it's not about stupid Russians building a bad reactor because she wants us to understand it's a universal problem that we all could have with atomic energy. Uh, Any reactor could fail. But yet this book and also Zinky Boys, which is about the war in Afghanistan, the Russian war in Afghanistan, over and over, you see the poor materiel that the Russians are given to deal with these gigantic crises, the the poor hand grenades, things that blow up in their faces, uh, the, the kinds of uh, gear that the men were given to walk into Chernobyl. It was inexcusable.
1: So let's talk about Zinky Boy's uh Subtitle, The Record of a Lost Soviet Generation. This this was published a long time ago, 1992, just after the fall of the Soviet Union. It's about, it's an oral history of the Soviet war in uh, Afghanistan. First of all, explain the title.
4: Oh, Zinky Boys. Uh, the dead from Afghanistan were sent home in coffins made of zinc. So that this was their nickname in Russian, and that's the translation.
1: And what kind of book is this?
4: Again, it's a very grueling, horrible book. It's really a book about uh, mothers and sons. And Chernobyl is a book about wives and husbands more. So you see the mothers waiting for the sons, and then the sons come back in terrible shape, if at all. And uh, that's why it's named after the coffin.
1: For Americans, there's an obvious comparison here to the Vietnam War. Was that your reaction reading it? Totally, because...
4: Um, it's a war that really, I think, and I think she believes, she's convincing on this without ever saying it. It brought down the state. It brought down the Soviet Union, that it was one of the major factors leading to the fall of the regime, of the system, because Russians were disgusted with the system by then.
1: And there's this other similarity that the uh, Soviet troops coming home from Afghanistan were not greeted as heroes. They were disrespected.
4: They had suffered so much. And, and the book really lets you know how these people suffered and the cruelty of the war there. And the Mujahideen were not uh, nice to captured soldiers, uh, Russians, and I assume Americans later. And so what they suffered was enormous. And then they came home and they were treated like fools who'd been used in a, in a unheroic war.
1: Going back to the Chernobyl book, the one that really won her the Nobel uh, Prize for Literature this week, uh, tell us a little more about the descriptions, what's in these oral histories.
4: So, again, as I said, you just can't stop reading this book, but the descriptions are of hospitals, wives at the bedside of their dying husbands, very, very vivid descriptions by those wives of what their husbands suffered from becoming essentially nuclear reactors themselves and what that does to the human body. Very, Ooh. very vivid stuff. And it also describes the effect on the communities near the Chernobyl reactor and on the children who came after and who had to live as, as uh, known victims of Chernobyl among their classmates and among their communities. And I'd love to read a little uh, excerpt. Please. So this is uh, a mother talking. I'm afraid of staying on this land. They gave me a dosimeter, but what am I supposed to do with it? I do my laundry. It's nice and white, but the dosimeter goes off. I make some food, bake a pie. It goes off. I make the bed. It goes off. What do I need it for? I feed my kids and cry. Why are you crying, Mom? I have two boys. They don't go to nursery school or kindergarten. They're always in the hospital the older one, he's neither a boy nor a girl. He's bald. I take him to the doctors and also to the healers. He's the littlest one in his grade. He can't run. He can't play. If someone hits him by accident and he starts bleeding, he might die. He has a blood disease. I can't even pronounce the word for it. I'm lying with him in the hospital and thinking he's going to die. I understood later on that you can't think that way. I cried in the bathroom. None of the mothers cry in the hospital rooms. They cry in the toilets, the baths. I come back cheerful. Your cheeks are red. You're getting better. Mom, he says, take me out of the hospital. I'm going to die here. Everyone here dies. Now where am I going to cry? In the bathroom? There's a line for the bathroom. Everyone like me is in that line.
1: Amy Wilentz, reading from Svetlana Alexievich. She was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature. This Week in Oslo. Amy, novelist, journalist, writer, and longtime contributing editor at The Nation, thanks for coming in today. Thank you. For more on Svetlana Alexievich, and her hometown of Minsk, we turn now to Tom Lutz. He was in Minsk the week before her prize was announced. He's written a lot, including the award-winning book, Doing Nothing, A History of Loafers, Loungers, Slackers, and Bums in America. He teaches creative writing at UC Riverside. He's editor-in-chief at the LA Review of Books. Tom Lutz, welcome to the program. Glad to be here. You went to Minsk because you had heard the rumors that Svetlana Alexievich was going to win the Nobel Prize?
5: No, that's not true. Actually, I went uh, I went because I am trying to go to every country in the world. It's a it's a little project of mine and Belarus was on my list and so I went. And what but when I was in Minsk, I asked a number of people, who are the great writers? Who are the great Belarusian writers? And um, and a number of people said the best is Svetlana Alexievich.
1: Had you ever heard of Svetlana Alexievich before you went to Minsk?
5: No. And I, in fact, uh, you know, I wrote down her name uh, for my reading list and then completely forgot about it and uh, only found out as I was preparing for this program (laughs) she was the person who uh, I was recommended.
1: You you remember what Calvin Trillin said when an obscure French writer named Claude Simon won the Nobel Prize for Literature several years ago? Calvin Trillin said, Susan Sontag better have heard of this guy or there'll be trouble. (laughs) (laughs)
5: And, uh, of course, we don't have Susan's help anymore.
1: So Svetlana Alexievich, one of the things I know about her from reading the news coverage is that she's been persecuted in Belarus by the president, Alexander Lukashenko. She was forced to leave Belarus in 2000. She went to live in Paris and Berlin, and she only returned to Minsk in 2011, I looked up Lukashenko and and learned uh, he was reelected to a fifth term in a landslide. So, uh, what can yes. you tell us about uh, Lukashenko?
5: Well, the you know the, he wins in a landslide every time. He's that kind of dictator. He's called Europe's last dictator. Um, he uh, international observers never like the Belarusian elections, and uh, and there's a kind of long standing, obviously now because uh, he's been in power for you know since the wall came down in in berlin uh the, the uh, there's been a long or i guess he, it was a, a couple of years later he ca- he came into power um there's a long standing opposition um it's not entirely underground i went to the opposition bookstore in minsk which is called u which is a the Bel- it's a y with a little accent mark on top of it which is known as the belarusian letter that Belarus is very proud of. It's a letter in their Cyrillic alphabet that is not in the Russian Cyrillic alphabet. Um, And uh, that's the name of the bookstore. And it's got a, it's got a dozen different uh, opposition literary slash political magazines on the shelves. And um, it's a, you know, small time operation, but it's, uh, but it's vibrant and it doesn't seem to be you know, it's not exactly underground. It was a little hard to find, but it's not exactly underground. It's not, people are not hiding. uh, People are publishing. People are are talking out against the regime. She has trouble publishing in in Belarus now. My sense from the people that I talked to, and again, I had a very limited uh, array of people that I could talk to because it was, or there were people that spoke English. And for instance, a couple of women that I spent uh, a lunch with who were, worked in international banking. I mean, they were they just worked in a bank and they happened to be in the international part of it. So they had learned English. Uh, their English was fairly good. We talked about movies. We talked about literature. We talked about a number of different topics. Um, the, the woman who was the kind of, um, the force in this, in this duo, let me start that over again. The, one of the women spoke, uh, about her relation to Lukashenko. She and she complained that in the West, it seemed to her, all of the all of the talk about Belarus was about the dictatorship, about Lukashenko, about the about how repressive his regime was, and she thought that that was and how dangerous therefore Belarus was uh, for her. She thought that was unfortunate. She thought it was wrong. She said, "If you look around, do you feel endangered at all in any way?" And I had to admit, no, I do not. Uh, and she said, "You know that she had been in the opposition her entire life." She still still considered herself part of the opposition, but she found herself being less and less interested in it as she got older, in part because it is true that Lukashenko is brutal against the people who fight him, Um, but in all sorts of other ways, the country is kind of going on in in the way that it had been going on when she was a a young woman. She was uh, around 60 years old, I would say.
1: So Svetlana Alexeyevich's book "Voices of Chernobyl" is available in English. Now you were in Belarus. How close did you? Chernobyl isn't that far, as I understand it, from from Belarus. Well,
5: uh, Chernobyl is right in the in the little corner of the Ukraine, the top corner where it borders on both Russia and um, and Belarus. And the majority of the radioactivity that fell on the ground from this explosion fell in Belarus. Yeah. Be- a lot more Belarus um, of Belarus's land was affected by this than in either of the other two countries. The wind was heading that way, and um, and uh, and it, and it re- really is on the corner. There's a whole series, of, a whole section of Belarus that is marked on the map as the Chernobyl zone, and you are not allowed to go into it. It is it is um, it is irradiated. There's a major city down there that um, the map, the irradiation map, kind of cuts out. I assume because I just couldn't figure out how to get everybody out of that city. It's a, I, I think it's probably an unhealthy place to live. Um, it's a, it was a really a major, major. This is a small. It's a large area country, but it's a small population. It's only 10 million people in Belarus. Um, this was this was a, a disaster of unparalleled size. In fact, they talk about as many people dying. Um, from chernobyl as died in in world war ii
1: i know she got into trouble in the early 2000s when she did a series of newspaper interviews with soldiers during the the uh, afghan war um the russian government prosecuted her for defamation in three separate show trials Uh, the court costs exhausted her income the judge confiscated her tapes she was going to write a second book on the war, but they took away her tapes. Then, I don't know if you know about this, it's a fantastic story, an American group called Women's World, a transnational network of women writers, headed by Meredith Tax, an old friend of mine, took up the cause of Svetlana Alexievich. At this point, they nominated her for a cash prize given by Human Rights Watch to censored writers. She won, she used the prize money to do the Chernobyl project, which was even more dangerous in the Russian world. In 1995, she got sick, critically ill, apparently from exposure to radiation, doing those interviews. Her friend sent out an emergency appeal to get her out of Belarus. The... Women's World Group, headed by Meredith Tax, got her to Cyprus for medical care. Uh, then she won a Swedish literary prize, which had money which supported her while she finished her book in Paris and Berlin, moved back to Minsk in 2010. Quite a saga.
5: Yeah, well, it, it's no surprise that the Soviets were not happy with her reporting. I mean, when she talked about, when she in Zinky Boys, she says that... Um, You know, she talks about the propaganda war and the way that the Soviet press was talking about the, about the war, about helping our Southern brothers, um, you know, kind of liberating Afghanistan, this kind of, this kind of talk. And, and she said that, um, soldiers on leave take their guitars to the schools and sing of things they should be weeping about. Um, Mm -hmm. And so she's, she's, she's very much um, writing an anti-war track and she's blowing up the propaganda around the war at the same time. So obviously they're not going to be happy about this. She's now got a kind of international presence that she's never had before. And that should allow her to do some interesting new things.
1: Well, I want, just want to close by going back to your trip to, to Minsk and, and uh, Belarus. I couldn't forget the famous uh, Tom Lehrer song. I have a friend in Minsk who has a friend in Pinsk, whose friend in Omsk has a friend in Tomsk with a friend in Akmolinsk. Did you go from (laughs) Minsk to Pinsk?
5: No, as it turns out, there is absolutely no reason to go from Minsk to Pinsk.
1: Tom Lutz, he's editor of the L.A. Review of Books, and he went to Minsk the week before the city's most famous writer, Svetlana Alexievich won the Nobel Prize for Literature. Thank you, Tom. Glad to be here. That's it for today. Thanks to our guests, Leila Lalami. She talked about ISIS and American Muslims. Joan Walsh talked about Republicans and American guns. And Amy Wilentz and Tom Lutz talked about the winner of the Nobel Prize for Literature, Svetlana Alexievich. She wrote about Chernobyl. Start Making Sense, the nation podcast, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded and edited by Jerry Gorin and Ernesto Oriano at Emerson College, Los Angeles, which offers a range of courses from social media marketing to TV writing. Find out more at emerson.edu. Our senior producer at Start Making Sense is Alan Minsky. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds katrina vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of the nation our theme music is barcelona afrobeat licensed by creative commons find out more about start making sense at thenation.com and subscribe to start making sense on itunes or at stitcher soundcloud or wherever you get your podcasts i'm john wiener thanks for listening